The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. We are here to have the conversations that will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey everybody, welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm the Vice President of Business Development at Autism Spectrum Therapies. Uh, We're an agency that's providing therapies and treatments to kids and adults on the autism spectrum. We've got offices all across the country and have been able to do a lot of things such as this show to to spread research, to spread information and resources to families everywhere. Um, Really excited about today. Um, It feels like every show I'm kind of in a new place in a different desk getting to talk to new people. So today I'm coming to you guys from uh, Seattle again. Hopefully a little bit easier than our last Seattle Roadshow where it felt like everything was on the go and busy, busy, busy. Today I have a, a bit of an easier day to, to sit down and focus and, and really host the show. Um, but I, I've been here for a couple of days and, and I've, I've had some, some great opportunities to talk to people in the community up here who I, I haven't met before. And um, – I had a couple of conversations yesterday that have really been sticking with me that I've really gotten a chance to to reflect on. And it really came down to um, talking to different people who who knew what ABA stood for. You know, new ABA was applied behavior analysis. And they knew that um, ABA was research-based and that it had all of this foundation. They knew that families wanted it. It was this difference of their definition versus mine. And we ended up having some great conversations about ABA and, and what it really is and, and the idea of the science versus maybe one specific application. And, and so much of our conversation really came back to that big question and, and that big misconception of, you know, ABA and DTT are automatically the same thing. They're synonymous. One is the other. And, you know, it's one of my favorite conversations to have with folks is that what is different about them? And the idea that ABA is this overarching science and DTT is just one component of this, this science, one application. And it was so interesting to talk to this one mom who was telling me about um, – their experiences, her, her son um, and his journey, um, all of the progress they made and, and how ABA was something that she just didn't feel was right for her child, didn't think was the, the right approach. And now that her son is, is essentially middle school age, um, she was reexamining, relooking at things, thinking about next steps and even said to me by the end, 
you know, after saying it maybe an hour prior that ABA wasn't right for her kid, she's like, the way you describe it, I would consider ABA for my kid. And I was, I was so impressed by that. They, you know, they have seven and a half years of, of intervention history of all different types of intervention, and they've really worked. But to get her to say, I have a different understanding of ABA, I have a different understanding of what this would be and what therapy could look like for my son, I want to learn more. I want to hear more about it. It was really cool. It was really exciting. And then I got to have a conversation later on in the day with another BCBA, another board-certified behavior analyst in the area. And, and we got to have a similar conversation. And we talked about where, where people's backgrounds were coming from, what kind of people's experiences were from ABA. And we were both fortunate. She's, she's been up here in the Pacific Northwest for a number of years. But coincidentally enough, we both worked at the same school a year apart in, in Massachusetts. We both came uh, and spent time at the, the New England Center for Children, uh, a really great school um, for individuals on the spectrum out in uh, Southborough, Massachusetts, where, where I, as you guys who are regular listeners know, I started my ABA career. And, um, and, and she had the opportunity to start there as well. And we were talking about those differences, the idea of this East Coast perspective, this West Coast perspective, but then the perspective of the Pacific Northwest within the West Coast. Um, and, and I could relate very much to just seeing differences in Northern California versus Southern California for so long. It, 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 really, it really hit me, and, and I think it hit her as much, is that we have an obligation. We really need to do a better job as a field of educating people of the science of ABA. You know, so many of our parents kind of walk into and say, great, I heard I need ABA. I want ABA. Sign me up. And we probably need to do a better job of really filling parents in from day one of what is ABA really? And I think, and, and both this mother in the morning and, and this uh, other BCBA later in the afternoon, I feel like we both, both conversations led to the same thing of all of this feels like maybe extra work or, or maybe the parents should you know, automatically take what we have to say and say, you know, great, just get me going. But by doing all this upfront explanation, discussion um, about the philosophies, about the science of ABA, the, the, the overarching things that it's more than just DTT, even if your child is getting DTT right now in this moment, will lead to better outcomes. You know, we, we, we all went back to the same thing of the best ABA outcomes right now. The research is showing us it's that when parents are involved, it's when parents are participating, it's when they're following through and, and learning the strategies that we're doing in session and they're able to then apply them outside of sessions. And I wonder how much of this education about the science, education about what these philosophies, these critical elements that make up the science are from day one. And, you know, even as I'm saying all of this out loud, I, I, I go back to Dana Weber, that really great mom who, who I've had the, the pleasure of knowing for about two years, who was on the show about six months ago talking about her experiences and, and feeling like she She's a mom. She needs a scientist to come in and you're a teacher of the science, just like a chemistry professor teaches someone chemistry. She's like, I don't want to be just taught how to do DTT. I needed to be taught the science of ABA. And I think that's a really, 
a really important thing for us to keep in mind, especially as you out there start an ABA program to expect it of me as a BCBA and, and, and for me to be sure to set all that up for you as a parent. So it's, it's just a good reminder and just so great to hear different parts of the country, different parts of the world kind of sharing their experiences. And it's just nice to be reminded that so much of what we experience is the same. We may be a little different culturally, uh, geographically, our communities may have slightly different values, but we, at the same time, you know, we all are really hoping for the same things. Um, but anyway, with all of that, I, I want to get into this week's guests and, and talk to, uh, to our two guests today. Um, I'm really excited today to be joined by some folks who are going to be talking to us about, um, about feeding and about um, different feeding issues that so many of our kids have. And, and it's something that uh, a lot of our listeners have asked questions about um, through email and through Facebook. And it's something I hear from my families a lot um, is expanding the repertoire, really working on food selectivity. Um, and we see lots of different cases, but it's one that is much more of a, I think, a very specific, uh, tailored intervention that you know I know from my experience, not every BCBA can just jump into and do. And, and I often look for a lot of support and guidance um, from colleagues around me to help me in these things. So today I'm joined um, by Dr. Eric Levy, uh, the medical director of the Pediatric Feeding Disorders Program at Kennedy Krieger Institute, and Dr. Peter uh, Gerlami, uh, the clinical director of the Pediatric Feeding Disorders Program at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. Um, Dr. Levy is a researcher and a pediatrician who specialized in uh, medical care of children with severe developmental disabilities. Um, he's currently serving as the medical director, as I said, at the Pediatric Feeding Disorders Program at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. Um, since completing his fellowship in 1999, he's been working at the Kennedy Krieger Institute in its uh, spina uh, bifida and cerebral palsy programs. Um, he's also the former director of the Philip A. Kielty Center for Spina Bifida and Related Conditions. Um, Dr. Levy is also a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the uh, Academic Pediatric Association, Society of Research, in hydrocephalus and spina, spina bifida and the American Academy for Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. Dr. Peter uh, Gerlami is the clinical director and the case manager for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Program at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. He's also a licensed psychologist in the state of Maryland, as well as a board-certified behavior analyst, or BCBA. Uh, he's a member of the Association for Behavior Analysis and Maryland Association for Behavior Analysis. Um, his training and research and experience have all focused on the application of behavior analytic principles to the assessment and treatment of severe feeding problems and related concerns in individuals with or without developmental disabilities. Gentlemen, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. Uh, really excited. I, I don't know if all of our listeners know, but I haven't been on the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, the Kennedy Krieger Institute is just amazing. It's, it's something uh, that I know everyone that I work with just has such respect for. So it's, uh, it's a real honor to have you guys at talking about this program um, because so many people I work with see what you guys are doing as a, as a gold standard out there and something that we all kind of aspire to, uh, to learn from and uh, to get to gain some experiences from. So thanks again for being on the show. Thanks. Um, 
you know, I was I was hoping that maybe we could just start mm-hmm. off. I'm sure not a lot of our listeners um, know too much about the program. Um, and I was maybe hoping you could start off about telling us a little bit about um, the feeding disorders clinic and um, about what, what the program is. Well, I guess I can start. So um, we have a feeding disorders clinic, and uh, we see basically children anywhere from about one all the way up into teenage years for a variety of, of problems related to feeding. And um, my background is a developmental pediatrician, and I have a lot of years of experience in managing children with other disorders, like you said, cerebral palsy, spina bifida, um, significant motor disabilities. And a lot of the patients that I've seen had dysphagia and ended up being gastrostomy tube dependent. So I have a lot of experience doing that. And then I more recently joined um, the feeding disorders program. So I see a fair number of kids with motor disabilities and, and who are tube fed. And then we see a lot of kids who have more um, behaviorally based uh, feeding problems and kids who have uh, food allergies or eosinophilic esophagitis or other gastrointestinal problems, kids with congenital heart disease who, who develop feeding problems early on in life, kids with prematurity. So we see a variety wide variety of children with um, often medical problems early in life that led to feeding problems. But I would say close to half the kids that we see in the feeding disorders clinic are, are children with um, either significant intellectual disability or um, autism spectrum disorders or both that have, are the primary basis for their, their feeding problems. And then through the clinic evaluation, we you know, we have a team of people, um, includes a, a nurse practitioner, physician, um, uh, oral motor therapist, either speech pathology or occupational therapy, a nutritionist, and a behavioral psychologist. And we try as a group to come up with um, a plan for evaluation and treatment of children. We often offer outpatient therapy to begin with, and then for the more refractory patients, refer them to our intensive feeding program, um, and we can expand on that if you want. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely want to expand actually on a few different things you said, but um, I want to give us time too. So let's take a quick commercial break, and then um, let's, let's dive deeper into the program and the clinic, um, because I know our, our listeners are going to gain so much from it. Uh, so let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. 
call us today and let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, supporting extraordinary individuals and their families. Visit AutismTherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host, Rob, or the guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio, everybody. Uh, today, we are talking about feeding disorders. and We've got two guests from the Kennedy Krieger Institute. Um, you know, I, I know before the break, um, Eric, you gave us a, a pretty big you know, overarching description of the program um, and, and the general description of, what's go, of what you guys do. Um, one of the things that I know we've talked a lot about on the show and I think is really interesting is collaboration. And you talked about a lot of different people all being part of the clinic. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if all of our listeners are maybe aware of, like, why would there be so many different people with so many different backgrounds coming together just for feeding? Well, that's a great question. Um, we sort of think of ourselves each in terms of our roles, but we do overlap quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, so the, the medical person on the team typically is thinking about what are the underlying medical factors that contributed to the child developing a feeding disorder, what has been evaluated and summarizing that for the team because we often have to get um, insurance approval in order to treat the patient, and we need to be able to define what's going on. In some cases, they need further evaluation. Um, so, you know, the big things that we're thinking about, you know, do they have significant gastroesophageal reflux? Do they have a eosinophilic esophagitis, food allergies, impaired gastric emptying, constipation, things that affect appetite, affect um, pain when eating. Um, we're thinking about uh, difficulty swallowing and risk of aspiration. And then that sort of overlaps with what a normal motor therapist, so OT and speech are both evaluating the how is the child do, uh, chewing, how are they uh, moving food around in their mouth, what kinds of textures do they do well with, what kinds of textures don't they do well with, are they at risk for aspiration. And then in terms of treatment recommendations, they're often going to make recommendations about how do we present the food, what size presentation, um, what types of utensils you might use, what type of cup, um, what's the pacing of how you do it, um, and, and, and what are the best textures for that 
child. Um, that overlaps a little bit with nutrition sometimes because they often will recommend different types of food as well. They evaluate as a child in good nutritional status. Are they growing well? Do they have a normal weight for height or body mass index? Are they underweight, overweight? Are they at risk for nutritional deficiencies because of the types of foods that they're eating because they have a very selective diet? Do they need any sort of uh, vitamin, mineral supplementation? And then um, so many of the kids, I would say virtually all of the kids who come in and um, are, have significant food refusal or selectivity, um, it starts out as maybe a medical problem, maybe not, but it becomes a behavioral problem and they've developed maladaptive behaviors that interfere with their ability to eat. And so uh, a big part of the treatment is um, behavioral therapy. And Peter, you could probably expand on that. Well, and I guess if you think about it, one of the most, one of the things you don't want to do is try to feed a child something uh, that maybe is causing them some discomfort. So let's mm -hmm. say you have even great strategies to overcome food selectivity or food refusal, but you want to make sure that there's nothing bothering that child, which could have been the reason why the child became selective or refused food in the first mm. place. So I can tell you from coming before I went to Kennedy, came to Kennedy Krieger Institute, uh, being in, more on the outpatient side, when you mm -hmm. have a team around you that you can really cover all the bases. Feeding is a multifactorial process. There's physical, mm -hmm. there's behavioral, there's learning processes there. So it's really good to be able to have all those bases covered when, before you continue. Yeah, and, and that's actually what I'm, I'm kind of curious about next is like, what's the order or is there an order? Because as we go down the list of this person is responsible for this, which overlaps with what this other person is, selfishly being behavioral and being a, a BCBA and, and having that side of my training. Like, I, I wonder, like, Peter, like, when do you come in? Is there a set schedule of when each person comes in where you go through and check off every single medical box and then the behavioral comes in last? Does it start with behavioral and then does it go into some of the medicals when you start to uh, go through some basic interventions? Where um, is it? Go ahead. We're, Go ahead. Very, yeah, we're very lucky to have a, um, a large interdisciplinary team that works well together, so I could be part of that evaluation. Um, but yes, I would like to make sure that, that the medical side is looked at. So uh, Dr. Levy will do a, a medical assessment, make sure, rule out some things. You know, what about allergies? You know, we talked about mm -hmm. uh, gastroesophageal reflux, all these other kinds of issues, and to make sure that that, that doesn't seem to be the the, the main issue that's going on. And then um, some, looking at for the oromotor team, looking at the child's ability to manipulate the food. Again, mm -hmm. you're providing food. You want to make sure that the ability is there before you start working on the compliance part. But it's best done if, it, if the folks can be coordinating all this together and not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very distant, whether it be timeline or, or in, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, professionals. So. We're, we're all in clinic at once. Uh, we're overlapping to some extent even in our evaluation of the patients. So, um, uh, you know, we don't really have a specific order in which each discipline uh, sees the patient. And then when mm -hmm. we're all done seeing the patient and they've done a meal observation, usually the meal observation is done with the oral motor therapist and the behavioral psychologist together. Mm -hmm. uh, we sit down as a team and we talk about each child and, and you know, there's we don't, set boundaries on what each discipline can talk about. You know, it's common for the behavioral psychologist to say, hey, what about constipation or what about food allergies? And the nutritionist may say, yeah. you know, does this kid need a swallow study? 
Um, so, you know, we don't limit ourselves. But, you know, fortunately, we have some people who've been on the team for a really long time. Um, mm-hmm. um, Patty from Nutrition's been on the team for over 20 years. So even as a nutritionist, she could probably do all of our jobs. So, you know, I, I think that... Um, you know, people have wisdom that they've gained from all the other team members. People will talk about, oh, lessons I learned from Linda Schubert, who was one, a great OT that was part of our team. Um, you know, and it's not just the other OTs who are quoting her. It's, it's all the team members. I, I, I have to assume then, and, and you kind of said it, there's got to be a lot of trust between team members to be able to jump in and give, ask questions or make comments about other disciplines and people not feeling defensive and still being this collaborative team that you described, you got to have a lot of trust with one another and uh, respect for one another's opinions. There's sometimes defensiveness, but we work through it. And uh, I think there is a lot of respect among our team members. And sometimes the, you know, the differences, uh, the way people conceptualize problems and where they're coming from is, is a strength because you have mm-hmm. different views on the problem. But I think the, the, the success of a team, though, is that the ultimate goal is to get the child doing what they need to do in terms of their eating. And as long as everyone's focused on that, in the end, I think the outcome is good. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's good to, you know, you don't always, if everybody's always on the same page, you're not going to get different looks at things. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, you talked a little bit about the patients that you guys see, and I think you said um, at the top of the show that about 50% of the uh, patients who are coming into the clinic have developmental disabilities. Did I get that correct? Oh, even probably more have developmental disabilities. Okay. I was sort of um, at least 50% have sort of either intellectual disability okay. or an autism spectrum disorder um, as their primary reason for having the food the feeding disorder, meaning they didn't have mm-hmm. an underlying medical problem or something else that really, you know, contributed to it. I think Got that it. A, a good, so, you know, say a lot of the preemies who also have chronic lung disease and dysphagia and G-tubes and all kinds of things like that, they still have developmental disabilities, but it wasn't, that, their, their developmental problem wasn't necessarily the primary problem that led to the feeding problem. Or a kid with congenital heart disease may also have developmental problems, but it was really the severity of their congenital heart disease that led to it. Where I would say 50% probably, it's really their developmental disability, and, and the, probably the majority of those is kids with autism spectrum disorders. Got it. So how does, I'm curious how someone gets to the point of coming to a program like this. This feels like hearing you guys talk about it, this is clearly this organized, structured, and, and um, multidisciplinary approach. Um, how, what, what, how does a child get referred to a program like this? Is it a last course effort? Is it you know, where they try things on along the way? Or is this where you're getting to see kids right away when issues are coming up? Well, I, I think that um, the program's been in existence, as I said, for almost 25 years, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, so we do have a reputation as being really the, the first program in the country to really combine a medical evaluation, GI, um, motor therapy and behavioral psychology all into one program and to provide intensive uh, feeding services with a lot of success and rigor. And I've only been part of it really for three years, and Peter's been with it for a bit longer. 
Um, so we have this reputation. I think a lot of people find us through other parents, through maybe shows like this, through mm-hmm. um, referrals from um, people who trained at Kennedy Krieger and, and who've moved out to other areas of the country. Um, and then, you know, we have local patients, but, um, you know, I think if you compare the patients who are coming from the rest of the country to our local patients, the ones coming from the rest of the country are certainly more severe and, and sort of a wider variety of, of problems and have been through a, um, usually a longer course of, of failed treatments before they get to us. Yeah, we're often viewed as sometimes the last stop on the train in the terms of that they've tried other things before. And I think the other thing, um, we have uh, our intensive programs, which is uh, an inpatient and a day treatment model. And so we're able to actually work with uh, children of, you know, across a, a continuum of, of issues. And, um, you know, we can handle some more of the severe problem behavior and also some of the children that might have some more complicated medical issues uh, with, with their feeding issue. Fabulous. Well, let's take another commercial break, um, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about uh, feeding issues. We'll be right back, everyone. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today and let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, supporting extraordinary individuals and their families. Visit autismtherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host, Rob, or the guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's more info at AutismTherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. Um, right before the break, I know um, we were talking more about – we were talking about the clinic, and um, a big part of it was the evaluation process. Um, but I know you guys also have more of an intensive – um, inpatient program where more intensive treatment is taking place. So I was hoping that um, you could tell us a little bit more about about what that is and what kind of treatments are being used um, in the program. Right. So for patients who've had persistent severe feeding problems despite 
sort of more standard outpatient ther- therapy, which might occur once a week for a period of time or even twice a week. Um, we have uh, two intensive options. We have a day treatment program where children come Monday through Friday uh, and an inpatient program where they stay on our inpatient unit for, you know, seven days a week and they stay overnight. Um, and both of those programs really provide the same types of treatments um, and it typically lasts about six to eight weeks. And as part of a, a treatment team, we have um, developmental pediatrics, we have nutrition, occupational therapy, speech-language pathology, and behavioral psychology. And the patients are getting three meals a day uh, provided uh, through the behavioral team, and they're also getting oral motor therapy and other therapies through uh, speech and OT. Um, and so they're really getting intensive, what we call intensive treatment for a period of time, um, which often is gives them the boost that they need so eventually they can overcome their feeding disorder. But Peter can describe the actual treatment that's provided. Sure. I think uh, the first thing we want to do for any of the kids that come in is, is to assess their particular issues. I mean, we know some kids can come into the intensive program. They don't eat anything at all, and they could be too dependent. Uh, for their nutrition. Uh, they could eat some food and uh, the rest is via the tube. They could be extremely selective so that they'll eat fine, but they'll only eat certain types of food. Uh, or they can have um, a texture issue where they're eating, uh, they'll eat uh, a decent variety of food, but they'll only eat it at a, a very low or a particular texture. Um, the first step is, again, we want to make sure that the medical issues are taken care of, and so that's that part of the team that Dr. Levy is associated with. And then as we continue, the first step often is to, can we get these kids to take any food? So, again, um, if they've taken food before, we might build on something that they've already had and, and work from something new. But let's say that they haven't tried any food. So we have a lot of children with autism that don't, don't eat anything. Um, the goal is to get them to try some things, and that's often what the uh, behavioral psychology team will be working on. Now, as that's going on, we also want to assess the ability to take the food and manipulate the food, so our oral motor team is doing that in parallel as the behavioral psychology team is working on that compliance. Um, and as you gain success, uh, you know, as with feeding, uh, depending on where you begin on your journey, uh, there's usually things that you're going to be adding on there. So if you've never had more than one food, well, we get to two foods. Well, then we're going to try three, four, and see how many foods we can get into the diet. Uh, if you've only been on a particular texture, well, you have to work up there, too. We also have to talk about self-feeding. You could be uh, many children, they'll eat, but they won't eat uh, independently, so you have to work on that, too. So there's a lot of things that we'll be working on in parallel across the uh, course of the admission. The most important part, though, is whatever we accomplish, we want to make sure that the parents are going to be able to do this and that this will generalize to their home setting. So as the admission is going along, we're trying to take into parent input and put, into, put in things into place that, they will, that will work in their setting. And we try to do a lot of generalization, meaning meals, you know, group meals with family, meals outside of treatment settings. Um, and so that's, that's, that is, it goes along throughout the entire admission. So when you're doing this, um, do the, are the parents then observing certain parts of the session with someone kind of walking them through what to do? Is there, or do they actually participate in some of those meals? Yeah, that's a great um, question. So, 
sometimes it, de- it really depends. Every parent and every child is different. I think that's really important, especially with feeding disorders. You really want to do an individualized assessment because yeah. what the children do, why they do it, and what the parent's role in all of this is will be different from patient to patient. But typically, if we have a child that is, has failed all uh, interventions before coming to us, parents have had no success, our therapists take the lead role initially, and the parents are able to watch the sessions uh, behind a one-way mirror and uh, with supervision from one of the team, and we'll try to really move the kids along with the parents observing. As soon as we see that we've gotten some um, you know, progress, uh, we want to start bringing the parents back into the loop. And we have several ways to train them, including, you know, going over the plan. We do role plays with the therapist and the parent where they actually will practice feeding uh, the therapist to be able to ask questions like, what if this happens? What if this happens? And then we actually fade the parent back into the room. So as the success of the therapist is there, we bring the parent in and slowly closer and closer until you switch spots with the therapist. And then you mm-hmm. have the parent feeding and hopefully last step is we back out, and it looks like it was in the beginning where parents feeding, and this time hopefully it's successful. And do you do the parents get like homework assignments along the way? Is there um, an expectation at some point where, uh, for some reason, I have this image of uh, people dieting and they have like keep food journals. <laughs> um, for some reason, like this idea of like, would a parent then take a food journal of what their kids eating? We would do that more for an outpatient model. So if they were being seen once a week by a therapist, that would be, they would have homework. They might take a food diary, keep track of inappropriate behaviors and things. But when they're on the, uh, in our, you know, intensive program, either day treatment or inpatient, uh, we're keeping all the data. Um, and that's what the behavioral psychologists are great at. And, um, and so we're designing the protocol and, and then training them in it. Yeah, and I think you, you had mentioned, I think, in the, in the beginning, talking about uh, parents' uh, perceptions of behavior analysis and, and uh, what it really is and what it does. And I think part of that yeah. mission, they get the chance to see how we use that data that we collect to determine uh-huh. what treatment we use. And we actually hope to often convert them into starting to think the same way when they go home. If something were to change, to realize, okay, well, let me see. Has anything else changed in my environment? Simple ways to collect information that then could be used to then determine the next treatment that, or the modification to the current intervention. So we do mm-hmm. try to get them involved in that and show them that this is how we do it, but you could do it in the same way. Right. I think a lot of the patients um, have had oral motor therapy, OT speech in the past, and sort of the typical things that many children with developmental disabilities get in terms of working on feeding, but many of them haven't had a more behaviorally-based approach before they've come to us. And I think that's the real power of our program um, and why it works. And I have to tell you, I wasn't initially a believer. I kind of thought, oh, this kind of stuff is a bunch of malarkey, as as Joe Biden might say. And... (laughs) you know, I thought, why are, they, why are they collecting so much data, and why are they to deal with all these graphs? And, you know, you know, if a kid vomits, you know they vomited. Why do you have to keep track of every single one, that kind of thing? Um, right. But I was amazed by the success of some of the first patients I saw and how they went from, you know, taking two foods 
you know, as their preferred foods and nothing else to, you know, expanding beyond 16 foods by the end of eight, you know, eight weeks or going from completely gastrostomy tube dependent and not really taking anything substantial by mouth to being virtually off the tube at the end. Now, that doesn't happen with every child, but we, it happens enough that you go, wow, that you, we can do a lot in six to eight weeks. And so what it means is that the kids who come into the program, they're ready to make progress, but the behaviors are impeding that progress. And if we can just get past the behaviors, then really they can um, make tremendous gains. And, and it allows the other therapists, the speech pathologists and occupational therapists, to get inside their mouths and to do things that they weren't able to do before because of the behaviors were, were the problem. I'm still stuck, Eric, that you weren't a believer in the beginning. This is news to me. I'm glad, glad, glad this interview brought that out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I must admit, I was a little curious about that at the, at when we started this conversation is uh, I, I know not everyone buys into the behavioral approach to feeding right away. So I was curious how, uh, how you, Peter, how this approach came in and, and how well you were embraced by the team. So it, it's cool to hear actually that it was a bit of a process and everyone had to kind of get on board with time after seeing the results. I, I actually think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that drew me to feeding in general, so, you know, in terms of my uh, be having a behavioral background, is that uh, it seems to be an approach, and again, I'm an advocate for the interdisciplinary team, but it seems to be an approach that ha is very effective. And, you know, you can work in a lot of areas, uh, but feeding is one where you have a real beginning and an end, child not eating, child eating, and it's a very rewarding yeah. field to be in. And I think that um, to, uh, when we train staff initially and some of the procedures that we go through, because, again, we're dealing with very significant refusal issues that was very difficult to do probably at an outpatient or in the home, uh, they're not buying into it either. But it's almost like you've got to see the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and then you become, okay, I see it now. And I think that's something that, again, having a program being around for so long, you're able to do that. You're able to bring new people in and, and provide them with the experience. Excellent. Well, you know what? I want to, I'm going to take us to break a little early. Um, but when we come back from this break, I want to talk to, uh, to you guys a little bit more about the parents and some of the experiences and some of the feedback that you've been getting from parents of the kids who have been participating in this program. Because I know, uh, having seen some behavioral interventions, um, there sometimes is some specific feedback or some different feedback, um, because of maybe some of their expectations. So, uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about the parent experiences. We'll be right back, everyone. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance, and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies. But 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word Talk Radio to 96362. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today and let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, supporting extraordinary individuals and their families. Visit autismtherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host, Rob, or the guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio, everybody. Um, you know, right before the break, we were talking quite a bit about the, um, the interventions and the behavioral approach. And one of the things that I was curious about is, um, you know, Peter, having seen some of these interventions and seen the behavioral approach, I, I know and I've heard some similar things to what Eric shared about being a convert and, and seeing the progress and seeing the results. But I also have heard from a number of parents that the first time they saw the approach, it was stressful. They, they, their anxiety levels actually increased because maybe they were seeing new behaviors or more intense behaviors. Um, I was curious if you've seen that or heard that from parents and if maybe you could comment a little bit upon um, the, what parents kind of are going through um, as they implement these programs in the beginning because obviously they're not experts from day one. Right, yeah, we see, well, that's a question that comes up on uh, pretty much every day. Uh, I think when people are referring to that uh, initial increase or burst of behavior, you know, you have to think about the progression to get to that point. So when children don't want to do something, they try lots of different ways. They might say no, they might move their hand away, they might close their mouth if they don't want to eat. And oftentimes many parents, which would make sense, is they persist a little bit and they try to get some food in or they try to coax and they do these other things. Well, the kids start to realize, well, the more I hold out, the more I, you know, create a burst, the more I tantrum, uh, you know, the the easier it is to get out of it. At some point, you know, we had a child once who would threaten to throw up on us, and that's pretty difficult to be out in, in, you know, (laughs) out in a a restaurant and your child is threatening to throw up on you. The parent probably will stop presenting the food at that point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's pretty potent of a a behavior to choose. Um, So you can imagine if you get into a situation in an intensive program where one of the, the treatments is what we would call escape extinction. So those behaviors, the, the tantruming, the grabbing of the spoon, the head turning, uh, we don't respond to them. We don't remove the spoon. We're waiting for the child to take the bite. All you got to do is take this and you can go. Well, what happens is the child starts to escalate and escalates to a point where it could look uh, pretty rough. And, but what's interesting is the child has learned all this and the child's just waiting for us to, to say, that's it. Call, you know, that's, that's enough. We're going to remove the spoon. But what mm-hmm. happens is after doing that for a few sessions, Many of the kids drop right down. They realize, well, wow, this person's not going to do anything. Those behaviors don't have any impact on this person. So they actually relax a bit. And they also realize often for the first time they're taking that, once they take the spoon, they're all done. Life is good. Uh-huh. And, I, and, again, providing that there's no real problem with eating and that there's no discomfort, that bite goes in, they go down, they get some praise or uh, a preferred item, and you start to see that moving. Now, as a parent, 
watching that is very difficult. You might think that your child, that maybe you think that the, your child's not eating for some medical reason, and so you're worried, oh, how could we be doing this? So we often are sitting next to the parents and coaching them through this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but like I said, when you see that happen, the one great example that, that is actually helpful to when working with parents is after the sessions are off and over, the kids, they're fine. They walk out and they'll walk down, walk down the hallway. And we'll point out, look, they're fine. This is no, this is not lasting past where we we're done with the session. They realize what goes on in the session and what goes on outside the session, and I think that sometimes is a little bit helpful for parents. You know, with with the the parent piece, um, I know we we chatted about this a little bit during the break um, as well. But I, I thought it was interesting something that you were sharing about just parents who are going to this clinic. Maybe their child is in the six week program um, that that Eric started to describe and, and you picked up on um, what are you getting a sense of what other people are saying? Um, I know you made, uh, made reference to parents are sometimes talking about what their family and friends are commenting yeah. on. Yeah. It's, and, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, feeding problems are, everybody thinks they have a feeding problem, their kids, because most kids are picky. So I yeah. find with a lot of the families that we work with, they get so much pressure. They, people tell them, try this. This is what worked for me. Oh, this is what we need to do. And, you know, we had a parent here, uh, and it was the mother of the child, and, you know, uh, she saw a lot of the other parents here, and she started to talk to them, and she felt, she got very emotional because she felt like, I'm not crazy. I really do have a problem here. And we said, yes, mm. you do. Um, I like to tell the parents the example of um, when I got the job at Kennedy Krieger Institute. You know, I was all excited. I called my family, and I'm not going to say which family member, but when I tell them what I, what I was doing, they said, what do you do the rest of the day? I said, what do you mean, what do I do the rest of the day? This is an internationally known feeding disorders program. And they yeah. responded, um, well, who doesn't eat? And, you know, if you think about it, an Italian-American family from New York, they have no concept of folks not eating, so they would not be a very sympathetic person if you came to them with an issue. Um, yeah. and, and that really weighs down on parents, I think. And, again, when, when, when we're stressed and we're, we're not sure what we're doing, sometimes we make decisions that we would take back. So I think feeding is very difficult. Also, you have to, someone has to eat three times a day at least. So this is not something that is, happens once a day or every other day. It's every day. It's social. So when you have a problem eating, it's going to happen either in, in your house, outside your house, at school, at parties, uh, you know, and I said it's also a very, it's very nervous health-wise because you're trying to get the best diet. And so these things really wear down on our parents, that, uh, and, I, and I feel for them, and I think that's something we try to take into account when we work with them. You know, and most of the families are leaving with a fairly structured behavioral feeding protocol that they can use to feed their child, but a lot of times they can use it to introduce new foods or get them to eat foods they haven't had before, and 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 it, it, it diminishes all the inappropriate mealtime behaviors and limits the length of the meal, and so a lot of families will say at the end, they'll say, wow, you know, the first, this is the first time I feel confident in my ability to take my child to a restaurant, right? I think this is going to be the first time that my child is able to eat with us Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, have turkey. And so you realize that what we all take for granted, which is eating with our families, going out to eat, you know, enjoying a, a social meal, they haven't been able to do for most of their lives. And right. by this treatment, they can... Um, begin to do that. And usually we've given them the tools so that they can continue to make progress after they leave so that they're the 
parent basically becomes the the primary therapist, you know, with some coaching from us and other people after they leave, but that we've given them the tools that they need in order to make progress when they've left. You know, not eating is a very powerful uh, uh, tool for children to to hold if they're not eating, because Mm -hmm. again, we have to respond to these things. And, uh, you know, we have families that, you know, almost feel that when we try to get them to leave, we're like, look, your child's identity has been a non-eater. We want to start thinking about eating. And actually, we don't want to put too much attention to eating. Eating should be something you do and move on. Rather, if you talk to a lot of families of children with feeding problems and parents with children with autism, they're focusing so much of their time and effort in that on the day. And our goal is actually for it to go the other direction. Yeah. I. I think it's the way you guys just kind of wrap this all up is just such a perfect way to look at it. Just the the, the power of eating, both in terms of bringing a family together and, and, and the different activities that come with it, but also the impact of not eating and how much power there is there. It's, I think it, for me, it really puts into perspective the importance of all of this and, and everything we're talking about for, for, uh, for the kids. Um, well, we're pretty much out of time. I just want to thank you guys for being on the show today. It was, it was really great to learn more about the program and, and to hear about how you guys are, are really weaving these different disciplines together into such an effective program. Um, I know, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners out there who are going to have more questions um, and would probably even want to learn more about the program or, um, and find out whether they be local or more distant. Um, I want to make sure I've got the information right but I know you guys have a website, uh, www.kennedykrieger.org, uh, um, and you're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, I'm assuming those are the best ways for families to, to come in, learn more about the program, um, and maybe even inquire about whether it's right for their child. Yes? That's right. That's the website, and there's a specific Perfect. age uh, for the feeding disorders program which they could find by going to that website. Um, there's also a um, 800 number if they'd rather call, but I don't actually have it on me. Peter, do you have the 800 number? No. Uh, okay. Well, I'm sure if anyone wants the 800 number, it'll, we'll be able to, uh, since we post the show and, and, and references to it on our Facebook page, um, we will include that on, the, on our Facebook page. So if families have inquiries about the 800 number, um, they'll be able to find it there. So that way Great. we can help out. Because I want to make sure, you know, everything you guys have described is incredible. And um, if there's families out there who, who want to be able to access this and inquire, it, the more we can do to help them, the better. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today. Really thank you it. for having us. Um, I've only got 30 seconds left. I wanted to let these guests talk as much as possible because uh, they had such great information to share with us. And as I've shared with you guys before, feeding is not my specialty. The behavioral approach, I know a bit, but uh, I, I don't know enough. So it, it was even great for me to learn a little bit more about the differences between their outpatient and inpatient programs. Um, two final things, though. Um, I mentioned uh, Dana Weber being a guest of ours uh, a while back. Um, she actually was on the show on January 22nd. So if you want to go back and listen to that. And uh, a great accompaniment to this show is one we did back in, on November 6, 2012 with Michelle Wallace uh, talking about uh, food selectivity and feeding. And I, I think they go really well hand in hand where Michelle, I think, gives a, a little bit more description on more about the outpatient side and 
um, using a behavioral approach uh, for an outpatient type of program. So I think they're, they're going to go great together. I hope you guys have a fabulous week, and we will see you next time. Take care. We hope you've had some questions about autism answered this week. Autism Spectrum Radio can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Please join us for another edition next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.